standard issue for all women. Hello, hello, Mickey here. Welcome to the sixth and final interview in our International Women's Day 2021 specials. I'm hoping you've been tuning into the previous five because each and every one is excellent. Am I biased? I mean, sure. Am I also right? Yes, yes, I am. I mean, just listen to this excellent list. Hannah had a glorious natter with actress Katie Wicks about body image and her forthcoming memoir, Delicacy. And Hannah also caught up with the excellent Sophie Kay, Kerrang's only female DJ, to talk women in rock. Jen's chatted to Laura Biceps Hoggins. What a great nickname. Personal trainer and co-director of the Foundry Gym, and they chat about strong women and body image. And Jen's also been on the blower to Dr. Hannah Lawson, senior lecturer in the history of ideas at King's College London, to find out about feminist thought throughout the ages and the importance of intersectionality. As for me, I had the honour of talking to feminist lawyer, founder of the Centre for Women's Justice and total hero, Harriet Wistrich, about the misogyny that's rife in the criminal justice system. And you're just about to hear me discussing Betty Friedan and the feminine mystique with journalist Gabby Hinsliff. Gabby has written the intro to a new ebook edition of Betty Friedan's seminal feminist classic, The Feminine Mystique, which came out on International Women's Day to mark 100 years since Friedan's birth. And also because it's still a vital feminist text. Nearly 60 years on, The Feminine Mystique was originally published in 1963. Friedan's Call to Arms, the book that helped launch second wave feminism, remains a cautionary tale about how women should never take hard won progress for granted. And if you fancy getting your eyes on this first ever ebook edition of The Feminine Mystique, it is published by Thread, and so you should head to thread books.com. It's also available in audio. And having just revisited the book myself for the first time in many, many years, I just couldn't recommend it more highly. It's incredible. And hopefully what you're about to listen to will ram that message home a little bit more. I am joined by esteemed journalist Gabby Hinsliff, who you'll no doubt have read in The Guardian and The Observer. Gabby, hello and a warm welcome to a fellow celibate career woman. (laughs) Hello. I like the esteemed bit better. (laughs) (laughs) Also, you've got kids, so I'm guessing that's not accurate. Very, very, very good encouragement to celibacy sometimes, but yeah. (laughs) We are here to talk seminal feminist Betty Friedan, who would have been 100 this year. And Gabby, you've written the introduction to a new ebook edition of Friedan's 1963 feminist classic, The Feminine Mystique. At the risk of sounding like a grandma, an ebook's quite, it's quite modern, isn't it? So why did you want to get involved and why bring Friedan into the 21st century? Why is an old person like me writing about men writing me? <laughs> no, I think what really struck um, the publishers, and I think this goes back to um, the, I don't know if, if you saw the series Mrs. America last year when it, when it was on the BBC, which was this sort of fantastic dramatisation of the sort of clash of second wave feminism with socially conservative housewives in the sort of 1960s. And we're watching that and thinking, you know, this is a story that absolutely gripped younger women. You know, that was who was watching. Mm-hmm. And perhaps not an audience that you would have thought would have been interested in, you know, in sort of a historical thing on feminism. And at that point, the publishers realised, well, there's an episode, of course, in Mrs. America specifically on Betty, which is a really kind of dramatic, punchy episode. And they thought, well, hang on, there's a whole audience out here who's never read the book and never encountered it. I'd read it years ago when I had sort of in the haze of having a small baby. And I think I was probably trying to sort of remind myself 
at the point where I thought, I can't do this. I just, work is all too much. I was trying to remind myself that there was a purpose to it and that I really did not want to give it all up and, and sort of stay at home. That really was, I would go mad. So I sort of read it as a sort of kick up my own backside, I think. Mm-hmm. But that was 10 years ago and I'd sort of forgotten about it really. And when I went back and started reading it, because I'd been asked to write the introduction, I was reading it in lockdown, the beginning of the January lockdown. So, you know, trapped at home, unable to leave the house, (laughs) spending my entire time making snacks for people who appeared in the kitchen every five minutes, complaining of being hungry. And it was it was a very good time to read this book, which is, of course, all about being trapped in the home and driven mad by it. And I saw so much that I hadn't seen the first time round. The main thing I saw that I hadn't seen the first time around, I think, is it wasn't just, I mean, this is a book that obviously said to women, it's okay to want more from life than than mopping floors and, and looking pretty for your husband. You know, it's not just okay. It's it's absolutely necessary, essential to your sense of identity and self-worth. And you, it's, so it's a liberation story, you know, and women made huge changes in their lives. As a, as a result, people would come up to her in the street and say, oh my God, that book changed my life. You know, I went back to college or I got a job or I left my husband. So it was a liberation story, but buried in the in the book is this sense that, how easily progress is reversed because life had been changing for women before the war you know in the 20s and 30s women's lives had been opening up and that all suddenly went backwards so the book is partly about freedom saying to herself you know how did we let ourselves get pushed back you know the suffragettes got the vote and our world was supposed to be opening up and then somehow we all ended up back in the kitchen how did we allow that to happen to ourselves mm-hmm. i've just got to say tracy ullman as betty Friedan. oh Chef's kiss, absolutely marvellous casting. So good. Also, not everyone listening will have read The Feminine Mystique or like me, like you, it'll have been a long time since they picked it up. So to recap, can you just tell us what is The Feminine Mystique? I'm doing bunny ears. And what is Fridan's The Problem That Has No Name, which I'm also doing bunny ears for, which is what made her write the book when she noticed it. Yes, the feminine mystique for her was this sort of myth that was sold to women that the only real way for a woman to be happy and contented and fulfilled is to find a husband, have a baby, settle down, look after your home, and that is what will make you happy. And men are made happy, of course, by going out to work, but that will not work for women. They'll be miserable. And almost women who did work, because a third of American women worked, even the time we're talking about in the 50s, you know, they were somehow to be pitied. It wasn't something that you would aspire to. Your aspirational life was in the suburbs, white picket fence, Betty Draper. You know, we, we all know, of course, what happened to Betty Draper, which is, the, and that is what, in a sense, drove her to write the book. You know, this idea that the, the myth women were being sold was a lie, you know, and, and, and that's where the problem that has no name comes in which is her word for the fact that actually millions of American women having followed this lifestyle that was supposed to make them happy were miserable they were on tranquilizers they were going to their doctors you know they were having affairs they were hitting the gin bottle at noon and thinking all the time that the problem was them there must be something wrong with them because they couldn't be happy in the way they were supposed to be happy and the book just said it's not you (laughs) it is it is the situation that you're forced into and that's what was so liberating for women I think the problem had that had no name was nameless precisely because it wasn't supposed to be a problem this was supposed to be your perfect life and it wasn't and she just blew that up and said look millions of other women feel like this you're not alone and that was why the book essentially then becomes the beginning of a mass movement of second wave feminism yeah so she hit that tide perfectly you mentioned Betty Draper there from Mad Men and that it's got to be a nod from the Mad Men writers that they called her Betty, right? I don't think it's a coincidence, exactly. 
I think before we go on and talk more about Betty Friedan, we need to acknowledge the big old problems with her. And they make their way into the feminine mystique. She's undoubtedly homophobic. It's gay men who bear the brunt of this in the book, but her fears that the lavender menace, which was her term for lesbians, were threat to the feminist movement are also well charted. She makes a well dodgy analogy with the trough of domesticity and Nazi concentration camps. She's myopic in that she predominantly focuses on white middle class Malays. And you know, that I guess in part in her defence, that's what she was. So that's where her focus was. And it's, it's totally fine to write about what you know. But she is an absolute snob when it comes to education and what work she considers worthwhile. Also, she did totally fib about her own story to present herself as a fellow disillusioned housewife when actually she was doing quite a lot of work. And also as a happily married woman when Carl Friedan was domestically violent with her. So she was a difficult woman, to put it mildly, and I think history shines that light on her. But in her part defence, and actually your intro brought this to my attention... She was even more radical than the feminine mystique conveys, but she was stymied by a publisher, wasn't she? She was. And and to take, you know, that's a long old charge sheet. And, Sorry. And Sorry, most Betty. Of is, most of it is fair, except possibly the bit about telling fibs. I mean, I think whenever people talk about difficult women, and, and Betty did have a reputation for being, you know, difficult, abrasive. You see that really in the, the Mrs. America episode. But, you know, she wasn't necessarily always an easy person to rub along with. And I think that sometimes difficult women, or very often difficult women, turn out to have had difficult lives. And that's what makes them difficult. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in Betty's case, that was really true. I mean, as you say, she had she had the attitudes and baggage of a woman who was born in 1921. She's the same age as Prince Philip. You know, we are not talking someone who, if they were dropped down um, in the middle of 2021, would have an instinctive feel, shall we say, for where we are now. <laughs> but, you know, the, the book is a piece of social history. It has to be taken as that. But she was living through many of the dilemmas that that she writes about and as you say she does write about white middle-class college educated women because that's what she was and that's what she knew and that was not every book has to do everything you know she does something that other people can then build on although she does attempt you know when she starts the movement when she starts the national organization of women the sort of feminist campaigning movement she started you know she did consciously try at that point to include black women and she went out of her way to do so And she had wanted to include that in the book. You know, she'd wanted to draw comparisons between sort of women's struggle and the civil rights movement that was sort of springing up all around her. She'd been on the marches, you know, she she was a firm believer. And she wanted to draw sort of comparison between the the sort of black and female liberation struggles. And her her publisher was like, oh no, you know, you're doing quite a lot of scary stuff already. Let's not, (laughs) let's let's not have too many controversies (laughs) in one book. And this was a book that she'd struggled. I mean, it only ended up as a book because she'd originally envisaged it as a magazine article, you know, about where she'd go out and interview unhappy housewives and say, look, this is all a lie. And when she tried, she was a, a freelance journalist for magazines. And when she tried to sell that article, every magazine she worked for was horrified. You know, they were like, oh no, women don't want to read this. You know, they were all making a fortune out of advertising, selling this suburban dream lifestyle. And the last thing they need is some ghastly woman coming along and saying, actually, it's all a lie. You know, so. It's always the last thing that people need is some ghastly woman exactly. coming along. <laughs> So the only way she could get it published was as a book. And even the book then becomes, you know, a compromise in some ways on on what she wanted to say. But those compromises, you know, talk about difficult lives. She did present this this image. It was very important to her. She felt that the, the public face of feminism should be someone with whom 
ordinary housewives could identify. She didn't want to be seen as scary or man-hating. Her critics always said of her, you know, or said of feminists, oh, they're bitter. They're just women who can't find men, you know. So it was important to her that she could say, look, I'm a happily married woman with sons. You know, I am not anti-man. I'm just saying this. But of course, behind the scenes, that was all unraveling as the book was being published her marriage was falling apart it was becoming violent she was going on tv to sell the book as this happily married woman but she was having to plaster on the makeup to hide the bruises before she went on and she was privately you see from her autobiography agonizing you know she felt she should get a divorce she felt was almost letting down the cause of feminism by not getting a divorce and yet to divorce would would shatter this sort of image that she had cultivated so there's all this sort of turmoil going on behind the scenes and while in some ways yes she's very privileged you know, white middle class educated woman from a fairly wealthy family in others she's not insulated from the things that she was talking about and from the pressures that she you know was writing about she did not have the easy life that she looks to have had on the surface and that that sort of constant need to hold things together to make the movement seem respectable somehow which which meant being happily married that was what drove the sort of the whole lavender menace thing which was about you know not wanting to acknowledge there was a group of sort of radical lesbians who used to interrupt the now meetings because they wanted their liberation struggle to be recognized as well you yeah. know which now we would think is totally legitimate and she was terrified that this was going to put off you know the sort of mainstream housewives of a middle america who she wanted to hear her message and so she kind of constantly keeping them at arm's length and now of course all of that looks incomprehensible to us but she was facing a totally different set of pressures at the time and she made bad choices sometimes but have we not all oh indeed indeed but we are talking about a time where women have only just kind of been recognized as being human rather than you know men with something missing and i think that touches really neatly on something that fridan talks a lot about and that is guilt And I feel this is still a massive issue for women today, particularly working mothers. Do you think that's true? Yeah, and I think that's the lingering thing that I took from the book, you know, the way the feminine mystique lingers on now. Because in some ways you read the book and think, God, this is a totally different world that, you know, we're talking about. Everyone works now, you know, it's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. But that sort of sense of guilt that you have as a working mother, this feeling always that something you haven't done or you shouldn't, you should have done and you haven't quite got on top of and should you not be baking more cakes and spending more time with your children and doing more of the crafty things that everyone seemed to be doing on Facebook (laughs) in the middle of the pandemic and you weren't you know I think that absolutely comes from trying to still hold ourselves to the standards that 50s women were held to except trying to have a full-time job on top of it you know and 50s women couldn't live up to it when they had nothing else to do and we're kind of torturing ourselves to do it at the same time as everything else you know if your house isn't kind of instagram worthy at all times and if your children aren't perfectly turned out and if you're not constantly you know on top of it and simultaneously making your own sourdough then somehow you failed (laughs) there are many things about our world that betty friedan probably wouldn't recognize but that one she would nail (laughs) i'd be really interested to know what she had to say on a lot of stuff but that's a different podcast i think that also ties into something i found really interesting revisiting the feminine mystique and that was how much blame even Betty leaves at the mother's door for any problems that the kids might have. And I think what's particularly awful, that that hasn't, that hasn't shifted much. The phrase, I blame the parents, is pretty much always saying, well, I blame the mother. And we've seen that a lot with Marcus Rashford's incredible campaign to feed kids when the government has gone, nah, not our problem. 
A lot of the comments from people with absolutely no grasp, it seems, on how poverty works have been like, well, the mums are going to be spending it on fags and drinking. And a lot of focus has gone on the women and a lot of blame is laid at the mother's door. Yes, and not at the father's. And I think that's, you know, in Betty's case, I think she doesn't say this in the book, but it's clear from her her autobiography, you know, a lot of her ideas originally about the feminist came from watching her own mother, who was a sort of frustrated, unhappy housewife and who Betty felt would have been much, you know, a nicer mother if she'd had a job to pour her energies mm-hmm. into instead of sort of taking it out on her children. And then in the book, she brings this sort of very 50s psychological mindset to bear. You know, you can feel the frustrated psychologist she would have been because that was her her degree and you know that was her she went on to do postgraduate psychology and she gave it up because when she got a big science fellowship her then boyfriend said oh I don't think there's a future for us as a couple if you you know if you do better than me so she backed off Mm -hmm. but you can feel the frustrated psychologist in her in the book you know and that's (laughs) but that's what leads her into a lot of trouble because she takes this very you know fashionable 50s Freudian view that that most ills in children can be laid at their mother's door it's something uh-huh. to do with the mother's relationship that's what leads her into some horrendously uh, sort of homophobic comments about you know gay men being sort of whether sort of smothering overprotective motherhood has something to do with with male homosexuality but yeah she was very focused on mothers and motherhood but she also does say in the book and that was sort of ahead of her time that she felt you know, it wasn't just women's roles in the home that needed to change, it was men's as well. And that might be liberating for men as well as for women, that they had these opportunities, that they would have opportunities to do something different too. And I think she would probably be very pleased to see that now, to see that, you know, men do take a more involved role with their kids now than they did in the 1950s. That's not saying much. <laughs> it's not a high bar necessarily. <laughs> always more to go. Always, always more room for improvement there, chaps. But, you know, <laughs> by comparison, you know, what fathers do now is light years ahead in some ways of what fathers did in the 50s. And I think she would have been pleased to see that. That's the unchanged bit of the equation, isn't it? Women's progress at work depends also on what men do in the home. Hey there, listener. If you've often found yourself wondering what else we're getting up to besides interviewing top women for your listening pleasure, you are in luck. We've revamped our newsletter, now known as the Bush Telegram, see what we did there, which we'll be taking it in turns to write. So now you can read all about what books Mix had a nose in, what Hannah's been watching, and what food substance I've been picking out of my daughter's ear. To subscribe, go to standardissuepodcast.com, and if you scroll to the bottom of the page, you will find a little box to whack your email in. And to be honest, no one would give me a Noel Edmonds watch column. Um, so this has worked out rather well. Let's talk pandemic because you touched on it earlier and you've made it the first focus of your brilliant new introduction. We've gone back. You say that it feels like the clocks went back overnight and women have been doing the majority of housework and homeschooling, even though three out of four British mothers with dependent children now do work and one in four is the major breadwinner in their household. She was very much a visionary on that front, wasn't she? And we have to be really wary of how easy it is to roll back any rights and progress that we've won. It was scary, wasn't it? I mean, there was that thing at the beginning of the pandemic when you suddenly realise, God, without my childcare, I am nothing. <laughs> Shut the schools, <laughs> take away, you know, take away all childcare and, and expect me to deliver the same job while simultaneously um, teaching somebody fractions. And I can't do it. You know, I had I can't do it. That was really scary for a lot of women. You realise how fragile all this infrastructure that we've taken for granted, all this progress that we've made, you know, 
it depends on quite shaky foundations and you never saw a pandemic coming along and sort of sweeping them away and the question for us now i think is is what's the long-term legacy of that I mean, we haven't we haven't sort of seen the full impact of, of what happens to, to unemployment what happens to jobs as a result of the pandemic but we know that women are concentrated in areas that have been really hard hit by sort of pandemic job losses you know it's retail it's restaurants it's hospitality those are sort of female dominated jobs we don't know what the long-term legacy of it's going to be and how many women women were one and a half times more likely than men to be furloughed or lose their jobs in the early stages of the pandemic precisely was and it's particularly intense for single mothers because they couldn't do their job so they had to ask for furlough and then you worry that that makes you vulnerable it's made you look disposable dispensable yeah. when it when it comes around to redundancies and i think we have to be really really vigilant that this doesn't sort of calcify into a long-term setback for women and I, th- I just remembered when I was reading the book you know at the height of lockdown so many of my friends have been saying god it's like being a 50s housewife all over again you know all I do is cook and wipe and wash and and, and you know like have five minutes at the end of the day to get some try and get all my work done but we didn't know we had no idea what being a 50s housewife was like we're too young to remember <laughs> and actually reading Betty was was a way of saying to myself I, I don't want to go back there thank you <laughs> no thank you just want to be out in the world and I think that feeling that we all have as we get to the end of of lockdown of you know please let me out let me be out there again I think that's a very good frame of mind in which to read a book about being trapped indoors well you mentioned it earlier that whole idea that progress goes two steps forward one step back and each time it's not been anything that could have been sort of planned for so with the 50s it was because of the war there was this backlash against feminism and now it's because of the pandemic it's not necessarily a backlash but it has set us back and in the feminine mystique Fudan talks about the backlash against first wave feminists as post-world war ii women handed back into the home and dismissed those who fought for the women's rights that they now took for granted like the vote as hoary old feminists And we see it today. A lot of contemporary women are dubious to the point of sneering when it comes to labelling themselves feminists because sometimes you just want to make your man a sandwich, Gabby. Now, I love a hoary old feminist and very much hope to be one when I grow up. But right now, it feels that for a lot of people, the problem with no name has shifted to become, oh, there isn't a problem. We've sorted it all out. Women have got everything. Do you think the feminine mystique can still be seen as a call to arms against this attitude? You know, what has it got to say to young women and indeed hoary old feminists in the making today? I absolutely do. As I'm, ne- I'm nearly a hoary old feminist. Yes. I reckon I'm knocking on the door of hoary old feminists. Me too. Um, probably significantly aged by the pandemic. Um, <laughs> but, it's, but I think it's... You're right that she is explicit about this sense of being pushed backwards and always having to be vigilant against being pushed backwards. And she says very explicitly, you know, in the 20s and 30s, think about women in the 20s, you know, you think of sort of rebelliously having your hair cut and wearing trousers and smoking and having the vote and, you know, woohoo, you're going to, we're going to, you know, the battle is won. And she said there, there was a, she talks about a sort of complacency, almost cockiness that, you know, we've done that we've fought that you know we've 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 won the battles and now everything will just carry on without us needing to do anything about it you know and and then naturally we will just sort of rise to our kind of full prominence and she was arguing that's not that's not how it works don't take it the reason there's been a first wave and then a second wave and then a third wave and then a fourth wave of feminism and don't think there won't have to be a fifth at some point Mm -hmm. is that you know it's never it's never settled it's never sorted it's never woo sit back put your feet up we're all fine you know there are always sort of reactionary forces and i was really shocked when i was looking up the figures for the for the intro you know 
that there is polling now showing a very high proportion of men aged of 18 to 24 will say that feminism has gone too far yep. that it's made it more difficult for men to get on in life that it's you know that it's somehow that women have overreached themselves and that the real victims now are men. And that's a very sort of, I think, seductive message for young men whose own lives have been disappointing or difficult. It's all women's fault. You know, somehow they've they've pushed me out of my rightful place. And you can absolutely see that in the rise of, you know, far right politics. You can see that message coming across. Here's a very easy target to blame. It comes in different shapes each time, in different forms each time. But I think you've always got to be watching for that backlash. You can't ever quite, sorry, it's not a relaxing message, but you can't ever quite take progress for granted. And also just not taking it for granted that we will retain the rights that we've already got. They're always under threat. We've seen that particularly over in America with the abortion laws. And like, you know, obviously we've made some steps forward in Ireland, but Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, still doesn't have access to abortion, basically. It's just, it's sort of semantics that you can say you've got it, but is it actually there? Practically no. And this is 2021 and women are still having to travel for basic healthcare rights. And the right to abortion was something Betty was arguing for in the 1960s. You know, it, we same old debate time and time and time again. And that's why I think in a way, I mean, I was thinking about why do sort of feminist classics that are then reinterpreted by younger women or picked up by younger women. And I was thinking about Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale adaptation for TV a couple of years ago, which, you know, novel written in the 1980s, sort of you wouldn't necessarily I wouldn't necessarily have expected it to be revived for now but it was younger women who absolutely got onto that because they saw in it they saw in this sort of story of you know a very sort of brutal feminist subjugation and having all your rights over your own body or sexual autonomy or fertility taken away from you saw a real parallel with the Trump years you know and it, and it felt to them as if all of that was coming true over again and you remember you remember people wearing the white bonnets mm -hmm. and the scarlet cloaks on, on protests you know there's a reason those stories still have resonance. There's a reason they still speak to you now. If it's good enough, a book is something that every generation can come back to and find something different in it. That's a definition of a classic. You can always come back and find something new, whether you're rereading it 20 years later or whether you've never heard of it and you're only coming to it now. You know, there's always there's always bits that feel a bit old fashioned, but there's always bits that you think, my God, you know, that was true then and it's true now. Yeah. When I picked it up and I said to this to you when we were emailing, I was I was staggered by how much of it still hit home. And there is a lot that just feels very outdated not least some of Frieden's attitudes. But I think it is worth getting over those and going, OK, you know, would I want to be friends with her? I mean, I probably would and try and, you know, convince her some of her thoughts need changing. But, like, a lot of people probably wouldn't want to be friends with her. But what she had to say remains really, really important, I think. I think it's also, I mean, there's a tendency as women, or I certainly do this, I know, is is you want your great female thinkers to be people you would like. And I don't think we necessarily expect that of great male thinkers. You take the ideas on that. You don't expect to be a lovely person who you'd want to go out for a drink with. You know, you, you take the ideas on their merits. And it's possible sometimes for someone to be someone you wouldn't see eye to eye with personally, or you might even be offended by some of the things you say, they say, or they might be difficult, whatever. But if the argument has merit, the argument has merit. And I think the strongest bits of the book are the journalistic ones where she's just going out and talking to women about things they don't say to other people. Yep. They're not able to say, and she's giving them a voice. Those are the bits of the book that still 
resonate however many years later you know she's taking herself out of it and she's just saying tell me how you feel tell me what's gone wrong with your life tell me how satisfied you are with your life and why and all these stories kind of pour out in a in a torrent and those are the bits where you think okay she's you know she's done people a service here she is changing lives as a result of letting other people speak their truth as Megan would say yes <laughs> also she's she's a work in progress herself and she kind of admits that she's been working for the magazines that have sold women this this idea that have sold women the feminine mystique and she's like oh shit <laughs> I've messed up here how do I put it right and I have like a lot of respect for acknowledging our mistakes and realizing that we we will still learn things that change our mind which is why I'd love I'd love to dump Betty in 2021 and see what she had to say Gabby a quick last question can we have it all I think you can have it all in stages can you have it all at once in the same minute now you're always dropping something aren't you it's always like two out of three boxes you can tick that's what that's what I think two out of three at any any possible time is good the best advice I was ever given about that was someone who said you've got to think of it like a lighthouse you know the beam goes round and it illuminates sort of each bit of your life when it's in the beam and every bit of your life gets some attention but the beam isn't everywhere at once and actually, so whatever you're dropping this week, you're picking up next week, hopefully. And whatever you haven't quite got your eye on now or are feeling like, oh, my God, I've screwed that up. You've got another chance. The beam is coming around again. You don't have to be simultaneously all the time good at everything. Yeah. Just look at what's what's in the path of the light now, basically. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's very comforting when I feel I'm messing up on multiple fronts. Yeah. <laughs> as long as there's one you're doing OK on, you're all right. You're winning. You've made me feel better about some of my shipwrecks. Gabby, you have your fingers in a lot of pies and I know that you're working on various things at the moment. So where can people find out more about what you're up to, please? Well, if you're that interested, normally I'm 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 on Twitter is normally where I sort of live my messy life in public. <laughs> you can find me in The Guardian on a very regular basis weekly. But other than that, generally, that's where whatever I'm, I'm up to, I'm up to it, usually in a despairing fashion of some kind. And what's but, your yeah. handle? I'm very easily at Gabby Hinsliff. <laughs> this is the thing about having a name that no one else can spell that's very unusual. At least it works on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so, so much for chatting to me. I could talk all day about this incredible, difficult woman. So it's been a real joy sharing it with a fellow hoary old feminist in the making. It's been brilliant. I really enjoyed your questions. Standard issue for all women.